Hello, welcome to the Filmmaking Sucks Podcast. Last week, things got a little hectic again between the Northeast Film Festival and the Bizarre Haunted Flea Market, and I actually completely forgot to upload the episode for that week, which was actually the Seed and Spark episode. We are really doing everything we can lately to keep up with the weekly episode release schedule, and we appreciate our listeners who put up with us and our inconsistencies. So, to make up for the missed week and some of the others we missed recently, here is a bonus episode. This was recorded at the Fear NYC Film Festival in October. Hosted by JK of Horror Happens Radio, this panel discussed, among other things, the current state and future of horror. Uh, panel guests included the producer and journalist Heather Buckley, horror historian Tyler Hickson, director Colin Adams-Toomey, director and actress Adrian Lovett, and actor Nicholas Tucci. So, I want to thank the people at Fear NYC and JK at Horror Happens Radio for allowing us to add this to our podcast feed and giving it to our listeners. If you want to hear more discussions like this, please check out the Horror Happens Radio on Homegrown Radio New Jersey. The show airs live every Tuesday at 4pm, and Jay talks to creators from all levels of the horror film industry, from Guillermo del Toro and Larry Fessenden to Steve Biro, Jessica Cameron, Jack Ketchum, and everyone in between. We were also tasked with shooting the discussion, and I'm currently editing that together. When the video is complete, it will be uploaded to our YouTube channel and in the show notes of this episode on MassGriefPictures.com. So, thank you for listening. Please subscribe to, rate, and review us on whatever podcasting app you're listening to us on. And as always, get out there, everyone, and make good films. My name is John Capo, and I'm the founder and director of Fear NYC. Thank you so much for coming out to our Masters of Horror panel. This is our first panel, the first time we've done this in the two years that we've been producing Fear NYC. So we're so happy that you're able to join us tonight. Uh, today. It's not quite tonight yet. Um, I want to introduce to you our moderator for today, J.K., host from Horror Happens Radio Show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Then we have Tyler Hickson, a horror historian from the Brooklyn Public Library. We have Colin Adams Toomey, whose film Lost Creek was in Fear NYC last year and won an award. We have Heather Buckley from Dread Central and Fangoria and many other wonderful things. We have Adrian Lovett, director of Hidden Daylight, which was an award winner at last year's Fear NYC. And last but not least, we have Nicholas Tucci, one of the stars of the horror film You're Next. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, the wonders of social media. Got to get it out there, folks. Got to get out there. Uh, as brought up by MJK, not only with Horror Happens Radio, but also with Horror Hound and several other entities that I will name and not name at this moment. Um, it's amazing to be here, and I thank John so much for having me in Fear NYC. Uh, to be a part of this, and it's it's a huge undertaking one year dealing with not only the aspect of 90 minutes of talk, but you want to fill every moment with things that are relevant for you, the filmmakers, the peers, the fans, everyone, but also the panelists who are so diverse, it's incredible. You go down the line, you have things that connect them, you have things that make them different, you have aspects that make them incredible and frightening at the same time. So, real quick, um, again, before we start, I want to... Thank you all, and I want to thank you all for coming out. So, for me, 
Um, I've been doing this five plus years with the radio program, uh, writing, being a part of the dysfunctional family, as I like to call it, here in the horror community. The last year, two years, really, for me, film festivals have become uh, something personal to me. And the ever-changing landscape of what a film festival is, is is really just mutating and evolving in front of us. New entities like Net Netflix and Amazon are coming in. Shutter is coming into play, and they're picking up properties like that. For those who don't know the relevance, the, that's where we're going to kick it off, really. Uh, with the aspect of, of film festivals like Fear NYC and New York City Horror and Brooklyn Horror Film Festival and it's fantastic, within a two-and-a-half, three-hour drive from each of them here, film festivals may be in danger. We have filmmakers, we have peers, we have a lot of amazing talent up here that have been involved in different parts. Amazon, Netflix, and you can go back to May earlier this year, recent ones like South by Southwest and Sundance bought up 40, 50, 60 properties, easy. All the films that you're seeing here soon may become a monopoly to be able to get a hold of them with these companies because they're going to send them right to VOD. One of the properties in general, and I had a chance to see it twice um, at Boston Underground Film Festival, as well as Fantasia was most beautiful island. You two were involved in it. Heather sits there, has a nice cup of coffee, and you see her in all of her splendor. And we have uh, our bouncer over there, Mr. Nicholas Tucci. Um, the film is incredible. It's done, it's, it's story embraced. Uh, it's about uh, immigration, it's about the struggle of one woman, it's about this dark seedy side of this city that you're in right now. It also was brought up pretty quickly as soon as uh, it went through Sundance, or South by Southwest, if I'm correct, which is great for the filmmakers, but getting availability for it, like we saw where after Boston Underground this past March, it was not available for anyone to see. So here's the first question for you to talk about as filmmakers, as journalists, as historians, and whatever else you might classify yourselves as, is the aspect of the film festival in danger? I don't think it like is. Why? I was, was going to jump in right away. Is because what they're actually doing, and if that, so, these all these movies are playing film fests. Are they're actually buying the curation that South by Southwest is doing? So you need someone to curate these things and say these things are good, and then one of these big firms are going to come in. It's like, well, th so. South by Southwest said all the stuff is good. Right. Well, let's buy it right now. What is it, it affects the windowing when it comes out. Because generally you want to go like, oh, you, so you can just watch it at a film fest and people go to the film fest. Oh, we're just now going to do like a 12-city run. Right. And then people watch it then. But you don't know when it's going to go on VOD. But now that they've revealed the end game, people just go like, I'll wait for it to go on v VOD. So I think it might affect people wanting to see it in the theater. But I think film fests are important because they're the tastemakers. Like a film like that, Most Beautiful Island, is considered to be a prestige film right. because it will do the film fest run. And I think without saying it was in a film fest, that it did a film fest run, it's like that helps the marketability of it. So I don't think it, it, I don't think it affects. It, it's interesting you say how, you know, they're spearheading, they're overseeing these projects because I went to Fantastic Fest. And 1922, Gerald's Game, Wheelman, were big properties out there for Netflix. And two out of the three were a shit show when it came to the fact of doing press and PR and getting them out there. It was really a new, a new world. Now, maybe in time, everything will smooth out. They'll work out the kinks in the system. But for that also, and this comes from people like Mitch Davis, this comes from people who are writing Fantastic Fest, it may actually cause an issue in getting those kind of films into the programming and seeing that 
where you're being able to see them as part of your lineup to draw people in. So while I agree with what you're saying, Heather, and I understand, it also may close the aspect of, of you know, pulling a lot of these films out, which may open the door for other filmmakers, filmmakers who might want that experience, but it may pull away projects that are pulling the audience away, which may hurt the film festival. As soon as a distributor picks up a film, they generally pull it from showing. Well, I understand that. Usually, yeah. and the, the issue with Netflix is that they don't want to show things theatrically, and you literally kill yourself to try to see it theatrically. But that's, I think, based on their very strong brand model, which I disagree with. Yeah, I would agree with but, that. I, I would say you see, I mean, you see Netflix get booed at a lot of festivals. You know, if, you know, even at Cannes. Yeah, exactly. They yeah. get booed all the time at Cannes because because they've really taken this very kind of particular kind of screw you attitude towards the entire f- film festival world. I would agree with that. Yeah, and kind of issued it entirely. Um, I would add that I think for, it depends on the level of filmmaker as well. I mean, if you're, if you're talking about really, really small, low budget films, then I think the film festival circuit is incredibly important still. Um, because there have been multiple platforms that have opened up for self-distribution, but they're only, I mean, they're, they're only so effective when it comes to actually getting your film out of the hands of an audience on a large scale. And for really small budget films, like what happened with our film last year, it was thanks to the film festival circuit because we just started a new production company. We didn't really have any cred under our belt as a new company. We'd all worked elsewhere, but hadn't really been able to establish ourselves and we were really trying to do that with this film. It was the film festival circuit that got us recognition and got us distribution um, in the end of the day. And I think that's true. And for even smaller films, this may be the only time that they get to be seen by a wider audience. So in that in that case, I also would say that they're important. I mean, that doesn't mean that they're going to survive. I don't. Right. That doesn't mean that that business model isn't suffering. But I, I would see them as important to a certain aspect, a certain level of filmmakers still. It's uh, so film festivals also are, are super important for filmmakers and especially burgeoning filmmakers in the sort of press the flesh sense. Um, my personal experience, and it just you, you see this happen so many times, where a lot of filmmakers will bring their first film, or their first feature, or a short film to a film festival, and will meet people at that festival, and apropos of whatever their offering is that year, that will allow them to make their next thing, and oftentimes that next thing will go back to the very same film festival, and I don't know how you replace that and that aspect of it if you completely sort of take these or you try to kind of reconfabulate it into something where it's just a digital and everybody's watching at home and you sort of ape the experience in that way um, the, uh, your next obviously which was mentioned um, the first time I uh, became aware of those filmmakers was at Fantastic Fest a year before because they had their uh, they being Adam Wingard and Simon Baird had their first feature A Horrible Way to Die of which there were very uh, uh, numerous members of that that were involved in Year Next. I was there with a, a, a different film, but it was the same producers that eventually made Year Next, and they came aware of those filmmakers because they saw A Horrible Way to Die at Fantastic Fest. I couldn't even get into A Horrible Way to Die that year at Fantastic Fest because it was a sensation and it was sold out. Um, so you know, it would certainly be a, a, a loss for uh, for everybody in that way too. Should those should film festivals go the way of the dodo bird, I think. I, I agree with that, and I would also say that that happens, or appears to happen, on multiple levels. I mean, it's not just the really tiny filmmakers that get that, that, get that opportunity through networking at film festivals. I think 
That was the story with Anna Lily Amirpour, the one, that, right. the woman who made uh, Girl Walks Home Alone right. at Night. I think it was through Fantastic Fest that she met uh, Elijah Wood, and Elijah Wood was the one through uh, his company was the one that actually made that happen because she'd been trying to get make that happen for like, like years before that, I think. And it was that it was it was that environment that allowed that to happen. And I would also say for personal experience, that's what happened here for us uh, last year. We met a bunch of really great producers that whose film was also in the festival with us and we hooked up and we're look, looking at making new stuff together. And it was this venue that made that happen. So yeah, I would agree with that, absolutely. And on a positive note, you know, like with Netflix and Amazon, I mean, they're the major uh, companies that are bringing in diverse content. Mm -hmm. It's not only one no, like you'll see big production companies above them, uh, so to speak, which I don't even know if that's true anymore. Um, but they they don't they tend not to bring in diverse content. Where this is, you know, uh, they are a supporter for different kinds of stories and and diverse characters and stories that you don't normally hear. Uh, and that's a lot of film festivals. Right. Like most of films in film festivals are in that realm, right? So, um, I mean, I have a film on Amazon. So it's just kind of, uh, you know, I, I don't want to like down Netflix and Amazon. I mean, I know maybe their business models aren't the best, but uh, in a sense, I've given, been given an opportunity through film festivals, through the exposure, um, to have a film on Amazon, you know? So, um, and there's not, there's such a lack of diversity in the horror genre and in video games. <laughs> it was another aspect that I was like, I was looking at my video game list and I was just like, wow, all of these are guys and white guys. And you know, no offense. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I mean, what I'm trying to say, but it's true. It's like film fests are great for white guys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 you can say that, yeah. you can say that, yeah. um, you know, and uh, me being a woman, a woman in this industry or in this genre, and someone who's also diverse, I'm, I'm Latina, so uh, that's, you don't see a lot of me, I guess, <laughs> and these festivals, I've been around and I can see that, uh, you know, there isn't a lot of me as a filmmaker, but there is a lot of me as an audience. And it was always said so much as that the folks that watch horror movies over all the time are Latino. Yeah. And Latina. Yeah. Like, it's a huge going funny? back and forth. Yeah, it's true. It's true. But the film festivals kind of, in a sense, have given me personally that exposure. It's interesting. One of the festivals that was just that, um, I'll leave it nameless for now, um, it, there was it was brought up that there was a lack of diversity and we were sitting around a table and it was just like here everyone's white you know and then you have one two whether black hispanic whatever it is and it's not meant to be any sort of disrespect but it's interesting how they market the film festivals and depending on where you are you know you have a certain niche crowd that's going to be a part of it you also have your inner circles that are going to be there i can name five festivals and tell you probably the 10 or 15 people are going to be at each one always and that's also a problem when it comes to film festivals because it's great to see an amazing audience out here. I can't. I think I know maybe three of you out here. That's not usual. I know quite a lot that's in the audience. To see is, it's not the same wherever you go, and and that's a scary, scary component to film festivals. And you know why do I harp so much on film festivals? Because as I brought up last week, there's no other place you're going to see a lot of these films unless you want to go on VOD. That was brought up already. VOD is the prevalent, and maybe VOD is it better than than going to the film festival. As filmmakers, you know, you have your varied opinions on it, but 
film festivals are one of the last places to be able to see any sort of these films, to see something like a flesh blanket, to see a Scars of Xavier, to go ahead and see a lot of these different diverse films. Well, TIFF just got rid of all of its, most of its horror programming when it got rid yeah. of that. that it got rid of Vanguard. Yeah. yeah, and that was where all the genre stuff was. Right. So now you only have the 13 slots for, um, in, uh, for the Midnight Show. Right, and yeah. that is a very coveted spot. Peter Kropowski does a great job taking over Colin Geddes now. Love them both. Oh, they're amazing. I don't disagree with you. But that's, you know, you have those certain spots and those larger festivals might be able to get some of that programming as we round back to Netflix and Amazon. They might be able to get that, but then it becomes really kind of, and I hope to God no, but a bit in order to be able to bring some of these in. And I know there's a lot of red tape, there's a lot more too with it, but the basic concept of it, you know, now, here's a, let's reverse that for a second. You want positive news. Filmmakers, people who are involved in projects, actors, producers, whatever, everyone on here. Is it better for the fact of you if those tent poles are pulled out and you guys get the slots? Because that's something we see here with Fear NYC. Most of these films, we've seen at a variety of film festivals, but not brought together. This is one of the most diverse and unique lineups I've seen all year. So does it work for you? I think you need them because the type of film fest, here you go. I am also like, I'm a journalist, but I'm also a producer. I just, I produce like all these doc supplements and I just produce like a classic. By the way, film. the gas. I just want to say that. Called, called a ranger. And when you make a film, you want to find film festivals that have a market attached to it and people are going to, right. are going to buy the thing. So part of it is that's going to draw, draw different buyers there are the tentpole films, films that are just, that's, well, because, we're talking about film fest in general, but there's also like genre. It's like people will see a monster movie regardless of budget. So I feel like within the genre movie, I don't care like there was a Blumhouse, like Sony right. film with like our, oh, with our films. I don't think it matters. It's like the horror audience is there, but you have a diversity of different buyers when you have the temple things, people there. I would agree with that. I would say you can't get rid of them because then there's, there's it eliminates an avenue for filmmakers to progress if there isn't if there isn't that market there. But that also might not be the goal of all filmmakers. I don't think my goal is like to, to go to ever go work for a studio system. So I think it's important for buying. But in film festivals like this and I, I that don't have markets attached to it, this is a time just to sit and enjoy beautiful content with yes. people that you mm-hmm. love and a community around it. And I think they're super important. Uh, Puff is like that in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I was at my friend much. Madeline's Film Fest, and it was just this wonderful Philadelphia community. And it felt like home, and you could talk to everybody, and you're yeah. not trying to wheel and deal. There's no clicks or anything. There's just people love horror movies. Yeah, and, and, it's that, and that is so nice yeah. to, to do, to like turn yourself off from that for a little while and be able to yeah. actually enjoy this because of why we. Right. Wanted to do it in the first place. Like, and I feel yeah. like here, NYC specifically, out of a lot of the festivals that we've been through, has that that community and has that feeling. Because this was the only festival that I felt like after the screenings and after anything that we did, we still hung out with people and we right. still got to mm-hmm. to know people, you know, and and became friends with people and, and are still connected. And there's, I feel like a lot of the other festivals, it's not that. Yeah, it's, it's very, very rough, and I'll give a great example. It was recently at Brooklyn Horror Film Festival, and there was a lot going on with a lot of people. And there was one guy standing at the table, not talking for the moment, and I walked over and I had a chance to meet face-to-face with Nicholas Tucci, and I had him on the show before talking previous projects, and it was great to meet face-to-face. With festivals like that where there's so much going on, that's one of the great things about those festivals, the networking, the getting to know people. Andy Kohler out there in the audience, 
for uh, Terrors Mata, had a chance to meet him at the Philadelphia Indian Film Festival Huff, and had a chance to actually sit there and talk. It's a great experience to do it. Different ones have different vibes. And it's further common. No? I was going to say Horrible Imagining Film Fest when it comes to diversity. Do you know that one? Good. My friend oh. Miguel Rodriguez runs it. Awesome. And that is one of the most diverse film festivals I've ever yes. had. They have, uh, they have um, you know, blocks for uh, LGBT. And, just, and they have people all over the world, all colors, all stuff like that. It's because he does something that a lot of the other film fests don't do. And I mentioned this during the great disgrace that happened at Fantastic Fest, is that you need to do outreach into other people's communities. Right. Because when you go to the film fest and no one looks like you, that means you're not welcome. Right. But Miguel does that, as yep. does uh, Stacy from Etheria. She does outreach in the female com- people who are female and, and get them in there. And I will add on to that with Miguel because he was just recently on the show. He's tied into every aspect in the San Diego community with film. Every event you'll find in there. He's as open as you can find. So is Stacy. So is Heidi with the theory. Yes. They're amazingly open because they want to promote film. They want to promote filmmakers. They're also and both people of color, which is good to know as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, we'll move on from the film festival because it's amazing how fast time goes. Uh, it, it, it's great debate. Um, after we kick this one in, and in fact, you know, for, does anyone have any questions? I don't want to forget you folks out there. Any questions on the film festival aspect? Good. Talking about the uh, the big companies coming in and tentpole movies and all that. Uh, from a very small budget movie standpoint, and I'm here with uh, the director of Low Budget Nightmares, which you don't get much more low budget than that. Uh, we didn't bother with Sundance. We didn't bother with Slam Dance. We didn't bother with South by Southwest because that is where the people are spending the money to get in. A small festival like this. This is tailor-made. This is where you get your exposure. Those big festivals started out small. Yes. One day this is going to be the biggest tip for Sundance or anyplace else, and we'll be going someplace else if it's still low budget. This isn't going to stop, and somebody's going to have the idea of doing this again, always. Amen. Do that. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. <coughs> One thing I've experienced. Um, done a couple of shorts and what I found really brilliant is that once it once my films got into one short I've actually contacted them by other festivals who've heard about it or seen it and it sort of managed to get more exposure than I thought it possibly could because um, you get so so much rejection it's brutal it's something and nobody cares and then you have this little like moments of joy when it sort of has a little snowball effect where one little success might lead to someone else picking up and I got a call yesterday from another festival saying, Oh we've heard about your film with W to enter it, you know, and that's been really positive. Um, but to me it, from the experience I have I'm so it's absolutely the only way I know how to get my film out there. So I've been asked to put things on Amazon through different people but I just think this is gonna be a drop in the ocean on something like that. And for me I just want I love cinema experience. Especially horror, I think horror wins in cinema and most other genres of films. So to have that experience to play it on the screen in front of an actual group of audience watching a clip, we somehow we never want to give up. That's another conversation, a huge conversation that could run two days right there about what happens when the, the project goes into distribution, where it goes, where it lands, and who's going to ever see it. We don't know. Nonetheless, any other questions for you? Yeah, go ahead. It's, it's not a question, it's more of a comment. Something cool. that I've always appreciated about horror, ever since I first went to my first horror con, was how not in 
it's inclusive, but it's inclusive because people can recognize they're part of it. And as far as the diversity in film and, and horror movies that have been happening recently, what's dominated this year, everything that I've seen with all horror people, has been XX, Raw, and The Bad Batch. So you have Anna, Lilia Manpour, and Ivanka Vukovic, and Julia Dockernow, and that's, that's been all women. That's what everybody's been going crazy over. And also so, Get Out. Mm -hmm. get, yeah, get don't, out, we shouldn't get forget Get Out. Get out. Big, but those, at least where I was at, those super, like Get Out came out and was big, and then those three was just a triple hit, and until It came out, and then Mother, and now we have the, the What's Happening later in the year. Those were the big things that swept it. So I think that it's interesting that in the horror community and with horror people, they recognize what's good. It doesn't matter who's behind the camera. It's a matter of whether they respond to the material or not. And that's something that I've always thought was, was really was really good about horror was the fact that it's more about can you deliver or can you not. So, But you know what? This is where I throw an audible in the program. Because I, I think that's a great segue to talk about the aspect. And we'll get to the Masters of Horror and all that stuff. Everyone's heard about the Masters of Horror. But I think the aspect of women in programming and diversity in programming is something that's exceptionally relevant over the past year, especially. And it goes back long in that. But I talked to Ivanka. I had her on the program. And we talked about XX. And I talked with Todd Brown about XX. My question was this for her. Is a wonderful idea. Tremendous to have this anthology brought together. It, might, it puts the spotlight on women filmmakers. Is it just a gimmick? Or is it the aspect of something that might open doors for incredible women filmmaker in the room. I think you can watch sort of like the ABCs of death and it would be mostly all white males that made it and no one would say that was a gimmick. But I say it's a, the reason why I bring up the gimmick is because I'm hoping it's a door that opens. I'm not so sure it is. I'm not so sure it is. And I want to hear from the producers, filmmakers. The actual structure yeah. of the of making a film is stacked against uh, certain people who are female and people of color, and that comes down to the idea of, you know, do you because what what do people feel a director looks like? It's a white male. So when you're trying to get funding, it's like well, it just. I went through this entire process. It's like there's a lot of sexism and a lot of things with different aspects to get a film made. So the problem is like is access to money, access to crew to get out there as a first time filmmaker. It's why a lot of women just will make short films forever and there's no one that brings them over to let's make it let's make a feature film. It's at it's at every aspect of trying to get it done. That's it's what's so, so hard. I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, so no, sorry. You go I, ahead. it just we we were we had just um, been through this in a sense that we were I was producing a, a feature horror genre film and we were trying to get a lot of these female directors on board a ton. Right. Like we had called I think like 40 of them uh, over the course of a few months of researching who would be right for this and and the women from the XX was in the list and we had called like Roxanne Benjamin and you know right. just a whole slew of them and what we found was a lot of them were working on their own projects and couldn't commit to anyone else's at the time because no one else was giving them that opportunity in the scale that they're capable of doing it and so they were like F it, I'm going to make my own stuff, which is what happens to me a lot of times, which happens to them. And it was really hard to find a female director only because of that, you know, because they were creating their own work because they had no other 
way of getting their stuff out there. And I, I, I hope that from the XX, they've gotten some amazing exposure and have gotten some hits. But it's still this, this thing of we have the female directors who are as qualified as the male directors. Totally agree. And the male directors will go from a short to a $3 million movie. Yeah. And then there's a female directors that go from a short to like maybe another short, a short, yeah. another short, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And that and and that's a huge problem. And and you know I think the only way to fix it is the exposure, is creating more work, is continuing on with that. But I can see why you think it's a gimmick because it you know because it's a hot thing right now. Right. But I, I, I also don't. Diversity should be a hot thing. Yeah, it should be all of that and be a hot thing. It should be the most sexiest thing Hollywood yeah. could ever Right. Think. Yeah, I agree with should you. It, yeah, any exposure at all. And I, it, should, it should be embraced. It should right. absolutely be embraced. Exactly. Because, yeah. I mean, think about it. People in the room think of the first five directors that come to your mind. And then think of how many of those are women or people of color. Right. Like, how many people of color that direct films can you name? How many... I asked Mike Engel this. It's like out of all the run of Fangoria, how many women filmmakers have been on the cover of their movie? And I think it was like Marion Lambert twice. Wow. Out of the yep. entire no run of Fangoria. No. 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 I, you know what? That poses a different question, Adrian. Is the XX, the, is the XX hurting the female director then? Because if you're going to, if both of you are talking about short films going from one to the next, it sounds kind of like it's just spinning your wheels like it's getting you nowhere so is XX a good idea then to be able to have an anthology that focuses on female filmmakers if it's just from one short to the next I mean is it is it not you know I mean I feel like there should be an anthology that focuses on diverse filmmakers I, so it's women people of color and when I mean people of color I mean people of color not just right. black or latin i'm not saying indian right. or you know asian yeah, or it's, it's just there needs to be um a, i mean i love that they did that and i would have loved to be a part of that in in some capacity well that's what um, i'm hoping that's why i bring it up that but i I, I do feel like that's still needed you know okay. and because it's still such a male dominated industry because yeah. because like gives to like yeah, and there's no exactly. one out there to say like, oh, what about my? Thing? And it's so insidious. Right. I think that in a lot of the film industry, there's this level of sometimes misogyny, but definitely sexism that is almost not even thought of among the, like it's not it's not like there are certainly people out there that I think <clears throat> are actively misogynist. Mm-hmm. But I white. Right, exactly. I mean, yeah, exactly. Let's all address the elephant in the room. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yes, but I mean, I also think that there's a lot of because it's so it's been there since almost the beginning of the film industry and it's so all-encompassing that I think a lot of times it needs these things it needs these moments of of celebrating these things just to like remember there are people that are women that should be working because I think a lot of times that there's just a level of sexism that's built in that is almost unconscious that that people don't. And it's think 2017. Of women. We have to say that we have to go look women directors. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. How sad is not, that? It's not, so not sad. Even, not even filmmakers or directors. Even the actors on on because yeah. I I didn't get to see the XX. I've seen like snippets of it, but I can't. I vaguely remember. Is there any lead actors that are of color? In I any of their things. So now, I think now, when and, and that's, was, that was a female lead, but right. no one color. Yes. And there's no reason why there couldn't be. There's nothing in right. the scripts that say this person has to be white. However, right? though, and I, my apologies for, right. for for not remembering her name, but the 
the aspect of the animated buffers in between is of Hispanic heritage. Mm-hmm. As far as I don't remember where her name is, my apologies. But that's the only aspect that has any connection. Now, keep in mind, XX took years to get made. I remember Texas Frightmare three years ago. It was uh, Rebecca McKendry, it was Jen Lynch, it was Yabanka, and they were saying the Saskas are going to be a part of it, and Karen Kasama was going to be a part of it. It didn't work out that way because things fell apart, as you had brought up. Different projects, you go in different directions over the time, mm-hmm. you know. But I, I think that's one thing that's very interesting about the acting aspect of it mm-hmm. because. You know, there's a lot of great roles that are coming up for amazing female protagonists and antagonists. You know, you've seen here at the film festival very diverse stuff, but there's a, a huge problem with diversity as well as the aspect of female. Well, the most beautiful island is uh, written and directed by a Latina woman. I think right. it took ten years for her to get made until she talked to Larry at Tallyride, and and it went. It went to win like the South by Southwest Grand Jury Award, but no one wanted to give a first-time Latina woman a chance <laughs> who wrote a script. And the person who did, did well now, like Orion has put out the film because she wouldn't give her a chance. But Glass Eye is different when it comes to sort of diversity and huge. Yeah, huge. I, I mean that. that's that's Larry's heart is there. Yeah. Go ahead. All right. Um, it seems like it's so daunting, no matter who you are to get to the upper echelon. And you start looking at demographics of, yes, it's dominated by white males. Um, so statistically, it would seem that white males, more white males would get more opportunities in the upper echelon because there are more white male filmmaker, filmmakers and less diversity. And I've worked in the studio system for a long time. I'm out now. But um, you know, I worked in post on The Walking Dead and so forth. And it's very diverse. I mean, everyone who works on big motion pictures and television, the whole team, it takes a village, is as diverse as it gets. And we have female showrunners, and there's, I mean, right. a lot of the power within the Hollywood structure is shifting towards towards females. Well, they say specifically in television that there's an incredible move for yeah. female directors. Right. It's, it's, there it's is amazing. in TV, it's for awesome. sure. And yeah. you're, seeing, you're seeing, like, that shift is happening. So I think what you're talking about that is, is happening. I think that we're still all struggling as we're here right now, and you know, you look at the numbers, and you know, it's it's hard for anybody. It's like you have to be, you have to have that one piece of genius that breaks through, like, and it doesn't matter who you are, and, and it happens. A lot of it, yes, it's connections, who you're connected to, and um, and stuff like that. But it's now everyone's making movies. You know, I graduated film school in 98 and I was still on film, right? So, like, the digital re- you know, revolution hadn't begun yet, right? And um, everything's changed now, you know? I'm just cutting on a steam bag and stuff. So, um, and, you know, here I am, 40 years old. I, like, I'm a partner in a media company and we do VFX on movies and stuff like that. But I'm still trying to, you know, be what I want to be. You know, I want to direct and stuff. It's a struggle. I got to take care of my family, you know? Right. Everyone's got mm-hmm. these struggles, but... I think things are happening, positive things are happening towards that. So whatever we can do by diversifying film festivals and all that stuff can help. But uh, things are much better than they used to be when I, you know, from 15, 20 years ago when I started. Although I think that also brings up, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. That also brings up an interesting point because we were talking about television, the fact that television has uh, created a level of diversity that the movie industry is maybe lagging behind a little bit. You're also seeing a migration from the movie industry to the television industry from a lot of filmmakers as well, and that brings up the point: of what's going on with film? Like, is this? Right. Are they not catch? Is the film industry not catching up fast enough to 
to, to I'm not saying not survive, I think there's always going to be movies, but is it, is it isolating itself in a way that's going to be damaging to the film industry? Yeah. It's interesting how with Get Out, um, as well as XX, within, within basically the same calendar year, you know, you see people take them almost as shock treatments. There's a black person directing and writing a film. There's a bunch of women getting together to create an anthology. I, I think when you look at that kind of aspect, it, it really kind of puts things in perspective on where the film industry is. And you know what? Perhaps it's the first shots over the bow that's going to make change. Perhaps. But we don't know that. And, you know, again, I, I will tie back to film festivals. Film festivals offer that screen, offer that platform for filmmakers from around the world. We have how many different countries in the audience right now that have come here to New York City, one of the most, if not the most diverse cities in the entire world. So there is hope out there, and it's, it, it depends on your perspective. You could also say that the audience wants diversity and yeah. wants to see right. themselves yeah. represented on screen, and it is the people who make it yes. that go, it's just for us. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it, that's another conversation altogether on where this project's <laughs> come from, though. I agree with you, though. Anyone else want to add anything to it? Anyone out in the crowd? Going once, going twice. <laughs> Sold. All right, we move forward, folks. Um, let's talk Masters of Horror. Tyler. <laughs> uh, I agree. Um, we have, when we deal with Masters of Horror, one thing I think all of us in the last few years have noticed is that they're going away. I think that's a nice way of putting for what we've seen. Wes Craven took Hooper, uh, the aspect of George A. Romero, who you'll see Night of the Living Dead later on tonight. It's kind of scary to think how fast these legends are now going out. Um, one of the specialties in the title of this was Masters of Horror. For the panel up here, as well as the fans, filmmakers, anyone who's influenced by these masters, what does it mean to you to know that we're losing them? as quick as we are. I'm very grateful I got to meet them and talk to them. Is it great? Is yeah, it great? I, I, when uh, my soul to take was out, I got to uh, meet and uh, interview Wes Craven and talk to him about why genre was important to him, Romero, on many occasions. And Toby Hooper, I was trying to make a doc on the making of uh, Chainsaw 2, so I chased down a lot of his, <laughs> uh, his life and hung out with him many times. I have the... Um, the set photography from Chainsaw 2, all the, uh, all the negative the 35 stuff. Millimeter reel. I have Correct. the 35 yeah. millimeter reel in Chainsaw 2, <laughs> and, I, and I have all the, uh, the, the black and white photography of onset photography of that entire, entire, entire film. I mean, I, I, had a, I had a talk for all of them. I was so upset when Wes Craven died. I heard about that when I was on Struck at Heads, but when Toby died, because Chainsaw is such an important film to me, like I was doing pickups uh, for a movie I was working on, and I wanted to make sure that everybody left and I cried. It was like, it's like, oh, Jen has to leave, everyone has to leave. And I was so sad. And I was sad because I thought of, because they're so important, I thought of a world where tight Chainsaw didn't exist. And I said that at the uh, Alamo and Yonkers. It's like Chainsaw transformed modern horror filmmaking. And the idea that yes. we were so grateful that Toby Hooper existed. And regardless of like, the craziness of the rest of his career, like he made that film, he transformed cinema. And the idea that these guys were never around what they did for the genre that was so, so important. Yeah, all those guys. They're they, all transformative. Yeah, all of them were, were absolute pioneers. That, you know, they, they created modern horror, basically, all of them. And a lot of people are still using what they made and maybe improving on it, absolutely. But it, if it weren't for them, that most of what we consider to be the horror genre wouldn't exist, in my opinion. Hey, I'm going to add this quick story, and this has to do with Wes Craven. 
Um, within the same boundaries, within a 30 minute walk of the New York City Horror Film Festival, when Wes Craven was alive, he came out and he was honored with a lifetime achievement. And Wes Craven, for the time he was there, which was a couple hours, met every single person, took every single photo, took every single hand, sat for an hour, talked with the entire crowd. I had, and I take pride in speaking with legends as well as the, the filmmakers of tomorrow, the artists of tomorrow. But he was one of my bucket lists that I missed. And the only thing I got to say to him was, I thank you for your work. I shook his hand, and then the whole crowd swarmed him like the living dead. <laughs> there was no time to do it because of what the impact he was. On that same bill was Rob Zombie. He was there also the next night. Egotistical, the biggest <laughs> as he stood there and acted like the king. And I think one of the things, the reason why I say the story is, one of the things that means so much with that generation of Toad Hooper, George A. Romero, because I sat there with George A. Romero at the CT Horror Fest for nine hours. The guy went to the bathroom once. He met every single fan. He sat there. He was amazing. And he was obviously very ill at the time, because this was last year. And you know the rest of the story. But they weren't celebrities. They were filmmakers like everyone else in this room, trying to get their vision out, affected by events in their life, religion, politics, war. And that's kind of lost on this generation. No disrespect to filmmakers out there, but many of the mainstream, it's kind of lost because it's celebrity. Who's at the top of the bill? The director's thing, not the cast. Back then, for most films, it was just the title of the film. Later on, it was established as it. And uh, you know what, Nick, I want to ask you, because Adam Lungard, you can't find a more quiet guy, at least that I've seen. I mean, he really kind of stayed out of the spotlight for a long time. It took him forever to get a lot of his film work done. You know, he's one of the few why he's got a lot of mainstream success now. It took a long time, and he was very quiet in the background. Lucky McKee's the same exact way. How many have seen May in this room? Lucky McKee's film. Brilliant. I believe, has he moved out to LA or is he still in Oklahoma? You know, there's a lot of filmmakers who basically stay at the spotlight, but you can't say that. Definitely you can't say that for the Masters of Horror who were not celebrities back then. Impact of losing someone like a Tobuber, and Heather, thank you for the sharing on it, the personal experience, because I know how emotional it is with, with someone like Hooper who impacted so much. And I, it's, it's very upsetting. But also George A. Romero, you know, Night of the Living Dead, arguably the, might be the greatest independent film of all time, you know? Who's affected by it? Who else? I mean, I, I, I'm a fan of his stuff, and he, um, I mean, he was doing something that, not, it wasn't really a thing at that time period right. where horror films were just based on just one scary thing whether it was a monster or a person and then he brought in a group of scary things <laughs> into a film he brought in us yeah exactly <laughs> human, the human condition um, but yeah I mean and he that was that was something so different at the time bringing in you know zombies and a mass of them um, but the casting of Dwayne Jones. I was gonna say, and, and I was gonna say the casting, yeah, yeah. Where it was supposed to be originally a white male, and then he yeah. cast, a, you know, a black, a black actor, and that's another, you know, change of events that he he started, um, and open, of course, because he's Cuban. Right. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. 
Well, that so, he didn't know. Well, no, he's know. a person of color. Yeah. <laughs> and he talks about growing up sort of like in the in the, the sort of Pittsburgh, which is very blue collar. And, he, and he, he has very blue collar. He had so like a lot of there, racial epithets like... screamed at him like growing up because of his last name and his heritage. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. So I've always thought that's why he was open to cast. Well, and Toby was uh, inspired by him, by Dawn of the Dead. You know, at least that's what I've read in the past. <laughs> You know, and and because there's no one, there wasn't anyone doing that kind of horror film. There's also a prestigious yeah. aspect to it. Because mm-hmm. I mean, who has a Night of the Living Dead? MoMA does. Yeah, and I believe they also have chainsaw as well. Yeah, they do. Yeah. 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 Which, I, by the way, I love the story of how he came up with chainsaw. Because I don't know if anyone like knows, and maybe you do. Obviously, you would. I want to hear your story. Well, <laughs> what I heard, what I heard was he was Christmas shopping. And he was in yes. in a store, the like where there was like a massive group of people, yeah. and he saw a chainsaw in front of him. Was like, if I just grab this chainsaw and start <laughs> swinging it around, people would just scatter out of my way. And I was just like, I heard that, and I was like, that makes sense. Also, that, <laughs> that film came sense. from a political place as well because right. he's yes. from Austin, right. which is the more liberal aspect of an entire conservative city over right. in Texas. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, I'll even add one more wrinkle to it, and then Nicholas will jump over to you. Gunnar Hansen, or Gunnar Hansen, I always say Gunnar. Gunnar Hansen, how did he come up with Leatherface? He went to a mental institution, walked around. He was a big guy, spent two days there, and learned how to be different, learned how to be special, learned how to be, and we won't use the R word for this, but it impacted the way that he saw that character of Leatherface. And when the guards walked by him, they looked at him, they kept walking because he was convincing enough. Think about that. Uh, I was just going to say that I think it'll be interesting to see, and and it may take quite a long time, but who, when you know, who emerges as those kind of real the new masters, if you will, the That's nouveau the masters, yes. and also, you know, you talk about the impact that a movie like Chainsaw has, and. I, I kind of think of you know the, the the movie for me that was kind of the biggest leap forward in the last fifteen or whatever it was years um, would be twenty eight days later let's say right Great and now you can't say that Danny Boyle is a horror filmmaker right but and so how much of that owes to him how much of it owes to Alex Garland the screenwriter and so forth and so whether the fact that as a filmmaker your oeuvre will be dotted with enough of those kinds of efforts that you can be considered a horror master per se when when all kinds of filmmakers can kind of make contributions and evolutionary perhaps contributions to the genre I, I mean I do think it's important that you do have people that stay within you know not not like for their own purposes but I think it is important for the genre to have those kind of filmmakers that those are the kind of films they're interested in making, and, and those are the kind of themes that they're interested in looking at. And, and um, you know, just a, it's a personal. So much of it, I think, owes uh, horror, especially, is one of those genres where so much of it owes to influence of those who have right. come before. And you're always seeing this happen. You're always seeing this snowball and continuing to rotate. Next Thursday, I got to go up to Syracuse because I'm doing a short film where. Uh, the last like four minutes of it are me having a two-way conversation with a live goat. So you know, <laughs> yeah. like yeah. Robert Eggers obviously right, exactly. already influenced exactly. the, the, the twenty twenty-one year old. I think the kid guy who's good. really influential is actually David Fincher on the genre because like Seven did not influence things right away, but it has influenced what horror looks like. 
forever. He's probably like, if you want to, and he's not like like that. He's like not a horror filmmaker, but he's interested in that dark dark matter. And it just every film that I see, it's like it's influenced how he shot it, the color timing of it, right. why things are green. Saw looks at certain ways. Yeah. It's he's. Yeah, I think he would too, be. To be fair, I mean, Andrew Kevin. You know, the the way and the the turn, the dress right. and everything. You can see that. You know, tastes of that and so many things. Well, it, real quick, before we get to the crowd, anyone? Yeah, yeah, actually, I would actually add to that and say that that is kind of starting to be true across the board for a lot of directors. I mean, take a look at a lot of the kind of more uh, independent art house kind of horror that's been coming out, like Robert Eggers. He, I think he's doing a horror film next. I think he's Nosferatu. yeah, he's doing Nosferatu. Nosferatu. Yeah, yeah. 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 yeah, but he a lot of get any more, you know, full circle. But a lot of the other ones aren't. You know, uh, Jim Mickle made uh, the 2013 remake of We Are What We Are, which was right. really good. But he's not doing horror anymore now. No, he, like did, he went off that. and did the uh, Sunday show. Yeah, and uh, same thing with David. Is David Robert Mitchell the guy that did? Um, he it did. follows. It follows. Yeah. His his first film wasn't hard. And I don't know if he's going to make another hard. Well, if I may add on real quick, that's one thing that there was no classification with the masters. They weren't called the masters of horror coming out. It wasn't like a fraternity. The masters of horror. Here they are. This was. They were just filmmakers. They were just filmmakers. You want anything to it? Go uh, for it. I think that you know. I think we're in a period of time where I think it's beneficial that we don't have like a set master of horror because we get all of these diverse viewpoints on what the horror genre means to filmmakers to the audiences um i think that's really beneficial right now will we get another master of horror probably um but like we said who knows when it's going to happen but i think right now we're in a really really cool sort of era of horror films right yeah, now because yeah. we don't have a set like this is the guy that makes horror films this is like I think they were the guys that made horror films because they were pigeonholed in the cover films yeah. mm-hmm. and there might be more the flexibility for yeah. Fincher to move in and out of make, making films that make a lot of money but I know they all wanted to make something that was not horror films Romero tried to at Season of the right. West they changed that name Season of the West <laughs> to be more like a horror film so people would see yeah, you know, like people ask, "What's your favorite Wes Craven film?" And I say, "Music of My Heart." Is <laughs> <laughs> the, the only film that he actually got an opportunity and had to jump through hoops to be able to get that made, and it's a beautiful film. And he worked with some of the most prestigious talent in court, and I love the film, and I'm not afraid to say I love Insect. Minus last house on the left, I think. Was that course, minus last house on the left. Well, of yes, <laughs> you know. and, it, and that again, that shows the diversity. And we'll get to that in a few minutes. I want to take because I want to see who's the next level. Because Nick, you brought up the, the bridge for our next uh, topic, but Crowley, who wants to? Go I, I was, you know what? They they just hit a palm. I was going to say. Okay. That, I mean, I think horror for a lot of filmmakers. There's less rules, and uh, all True. the greats got their start in horror from Francis Ford Coppola, Dementia 13, you know, uh, Oliver Stone, The Hand. Like, it's a, it's a way for great filmmakers to showcase their style and their storytelling. And so, yeah, Wes complained about, you know, uh, I got pigeonholed a little bit right. in horror. And I think a lot of people in the room would be happy to be pigeonholed if we were you know? <laughs> but I think we're all storytellers when it comes down to it, and some of us are bent towards a dark like Fincher. But I think you said it very well when you're saying, you know, that it, it's really, um, you know, staying within the genre, it might be rare as we see some of the great filmmakers because they're, they're compelled to tell stories. And you know who's inside horror that I did an interview is Dario Argento. Dario Argento yeah. just wants to make horror films. Yeah, I love it. it. And it, there's some that just yeah, embrace it. Yes. Yeah. There are people that do, yeah, absolutely. Let's yeah. go. That, that is the way that I express my art. 
It's just the darkness in genre. I will say this: horror films come up with the best lines, and for seven, what's in the box? <laughs> so, um, anyone else in the crowd? Yes, good. You, you do also have some of the more backup. I mean, if you had the, the Mount Rushmore of horror masters, you have Carpenter, Romero, Craven, and Hooper. Fair but you, then you have your backups of Bob Clark, who I think is extremely right. influential. If it wasn't for Black Christmas, Halloween doesn't happen. Right. Texas Chainsaw Massacre, it does happen, but it was also inf influential on him. And he's somebody that influenced a whole bunch of people we now call masters of horror. But he, thing he's best known for is a Christmas story. And he got pigeonholed in horror for years before he was able to, to move on. But I think that it's it's important to look at not just the people that we consider the masters of horror, but the people that sort of back them up and influence them. Because I think a problem that we're having now is I see, I think about a lot after Blair Witch Project, Scream, Bride of Chucky, uh, and Freddy vs. Jason, people really, a lot of people have been running scared in the horror community because those changed everything. Wes Craven came out and said, I know everything that I'm doing and have been the whole time. He brought the self-awareness to the genre around. And since then, people have been like, well, I can't say anything snarky about slashers because one, Wes Craven knew what I was doing. So people have been trying to go back and be like, all right, how do I rebuild slashers? You don't. You don't. People have been trying to go back and do remakes and say, this is my reimagining of this. And nobody's really tried to do the, the research and the legwork in order to come up with something new if you look at what Craven did and what he was inspired by, Freedom Nightmare or something like that, there's an originality to it, there's back work, there's leg work, there's creative thoughts right. going into it. But since Blair Witch and Scream, everybody's been like, well, I'm not going to give those credit. I, you know, yeah. I, the people were angry that they were had with Blair Witch. But we have paranormal activity. Right. Well, and the it, full it, found footage. It's, and it's like, if you, say, you claim footage. that you don't like that movie, but yeah. how many found footage movies have come out since then? It's the reverse of what happened with Romero and all those masters. And I think that there needs to be some sort of breakout where people just, I think a lot of people are trying to hold on to a car that's out of control. Out of control and they really need to grab a hold of something and say, we've done this, we've been here before, we need to go back and try to do something different, because everybody's doing the same thing and saying, I'm doing something totally different, but it's like, what about this movie, this movie, this movie, this movie? Well, there's always been trends in film and right. any sort of art, and I was going to go back to a lot of, there's been a lot of articles about slasher films coming back, and I was yeah. watching one recently, I was actually watching The Prowler, and the way that that movie is put together, the kills, the shots, the crafts, I mean, any filmmaker could just watch that, but that's talking about the grammar of filmmaking and how they're composing things and how tension is created. If I may throw in, and this is a film that's currently on the festival, it's about to finish out the festival run. Uh, my friend Dahmer. I uh, love that yeah. film. Incredible. Mark I did Myers, a Q&A for that. Tapping in. You want to know how you reinvent something where you get a different feel? I think Sean Connery said best in The Untouchables. You don't go to the barrel, you go to the tree. And with, my, with Mark Myers, he went to the graphic novel. Um, I don't know the artist's name off the top of my head. It's very weird. But thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, he grew up with Jeffrey Dahmer. And I know Scars of Xavier plays into the aspect there is influence of, of what the serial killer is. When you go all the way back and see him as a child, an awkward teenager becoming who he is, that's how you re 
ignite the slasher genre. You go back to the origins of these madmen who influence. Also, I know a serial killer was amazing. That is yeah. a Christopher Lloyd. Yes, that's a yeah, uh, Christopher Lloyd. A lot of folks that didn't see that one, it was very much a sleeper. Yes, I meet people in the world that need to see that movie that I haven't seen oh, that movie. Very dark, very grim, and Christopher Lloyd is terrifying. And I think it's like terrifying. every and that kid is like uh, Max Record is like every horror fan I know. You all see yourself in it. Yeah, go ahead. Just um, maybe also, uh, you know, an aspect to this is it harkens back obviously to the the idea and the need for diversity, and particularly uh, people who are the the visionaries behind these projects. Is you know, maybe it's a maybe one of the ideas too is that you take something that's very conventional in the way that it fits in the genre. Let's say like a Final Girl type movie, and I think of so many of the stuff things that I've done like have really been a, 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 a female lead, final girl, sort of centric right. movie, it usually ends up beating me to death in the movie. Puts um, a blunder on your head. Exactly. <laughs> right. So, you, so you do, you, let's say you take that movie and you, you, a filmmaker of color does that movie, or a female filmmaker, for example, does that same kind of movie, and now you have a new perspective on the oldest hat in the, you know, the, the horror closet, as it were. Um, you know, so, so you don't necessarily have to always reinvent the wheel. Sometimes right. it's just the personality politics of who's behind it that can breathe a new life into yeah, yeah into, into the yeah. same an old idea. Yeah, I, I, I'd have to say Luchador <coughs> Productions up in Vancouver is doing some amazing stuff, taking the the Mexican heritage, um, reinventing it with modern day horror tropes and really incredible stuff what they're doing out there and that right there and again I'm going to go Scars of Xavier again because you're looking at Scars of Xavier and those who were here last night it's a handsome man who can blend in society can be a predator without you even knowing that he's sitting right behind you and actually he is sitting right behind you (laughs) but the point being is you know the question of dealing with minorities the question of dealing with women and getting their influence into the slasher genre it's real simple you go ahead and you bring in people that you don't expect to be. And that's how you that's how you jump that problem. That's how you're able to do it because Scars with Xavier does that really, really well. Final girls should come in every color. And they but amen to that. Amen to that. Um, any other ones from the crowd out there? I just I just like that concept, like why hasn't there been like three great filmmakers, different perspective of diversity, do the same fucking screenplay? I think everyone should keep remaking Texas Chainsaw Massacre right? the first film. Yeah, right. That's what they should do. You just give it to everybody. And every year, yeah. every year someone does it. That My dream like is to always have Martin Scorsese to do it one year. Cool you have the Texas Chainsaw Film Festival soon. Just keep right? making. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, one other thing that's not brought up in the, just one second: um, body image. Flesh Blanket does that really well for someone who is a who breaks down in front of you with a lot of factors that everyone can understand. And it's not only the aspect of gender or diversity, it's also the aspect of body image. Body image is a huge thing because, yes, there are films where they have the good-looking man or woman, but sometimes it's not as compelling as the person who's everyone else up here on the stage who's hurting on the inside and is close to making that list or close to doing these terrible things. It's very interesting how we only focus on the aspect of gender and diversity when it's body image, when it's the aspect of, of stories that are taboo. Well, also so, ableism. If, go ahead. That's, that's important. Yeah. Uh, if you can hire a lot of, I don't, you know, you want to see a lot, 
a lot of disabled people out there. Special needs, believe have me, I, I work in the field when I'm not doing this, and I understand that Yeah, clearly. they go work in a crew, they yes. films. There was this film recently about a woman who uh, had a, a chronic fatigue syndrome, and she directed the entire doc from her bed. And it worked, and it did a, a big film fest thing my friend Sean saw and told me about it. I was like, that's great. So I think we also, when we're thinking about people of color, we have, that's what we have to think about everything, everyone. Right. Mm-hmm. We have to stop looking in the mirror and thinking about ourselves as like, what about all those people? And I think what helps folks pick other people is that in your daily life, like I've had people in my family, like my grandfather was in a wheelchair, all my friends are different backgrounds because of the, the New York City punk scene. And because of that, I remember it's like, my friend group looks like this. And when I'm on a set, does my friend group look like this? Are these the people in, 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 in my life? So I think it might start at a very like socialization stage. Go ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm 60 years old, so I'm a different generation than a lot of people here. So I was, I, I was 45 years old when I made my first motion picture. Role produced, directed, but most of the people on the set were women. Executive producer, my wife, uh, production manager, uh, and uh, the type of film I was making was a revenge film, and uh, one of the things that, since I'm, I grew up in a, in a generation where I actually saw those films on a drive-in. I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So and, and, I, 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 saw, I, saw, I saw every single one of those in a drive-in, and that's what my was my influence, you know, seeing uh, revenge films. And um, nowadays, I write. That's all I do. Because getting funny, I'm you know I'm 60 years old. And I, they want a young guy. He's talking right. about ageism. <laughs> the first thing I said is, well, I got to write for people and hand them scripts. So ageism is there, uh, and that's part of the problem with John Landis not being able to get you know, right. an A-list movie. George A. Romero. George A. Romero couldn't get it, and that, and it's ageism is what it was. And you could throw your name on top of something. Except for George Miller being the outlier, of course. Well, yeah. George Miller's yeah. a lucky man. But he, cho- he chooses not to work until he wants to work, and he, right. and he does the one thing he loves to do. And uh, but um, that's pretty much my statement. I was just I'm I'm lucky enough to have seen that type of work, and. Uh, seeing House on Hornet Hill when I was four years old on, on, uh, on Channel 5 here in New York and, and freaking out and, not, and, then wait, and waiting for it to come back on and freak out again. And now I watch it and it's, uh, I laugh. I go, this is the silliest thing I've ever seen. But they even make fun of it on Rift Tricks. So they're a good friend. But, uh, cool. Um, yeah, go ahead. Go on. Sorry, I think I'm a little late to this panel. I, but I, uh, well, well, I, I, uh, I, I was just curious because you were talking about different, uh, just, just the, I guess the different changes in, in the horror genre and uh, I, I sort of feel like I'm sort of a, a latecomer to, to the genre, uh, but I, I really did uh, enjoy seeing, uh, seeing The Witch, I remember seeing the trailers for that, but I know it's such a divisive film and I don't know for many horror fans and for many uh, people it's just very mixed reaction I didn't know why why that was I mean is it is it's it just the expectation of horror I mean a lot of the elevated genre stuff to be quite frank is like I'm going to make a very arty film and I'm going to remove what would be considered to be traditional genre elements to it and for people like me who are looking for 
uh, transgressive imagery and just uh, cathartic experience and strange characters and outsider characters. It seems to be that the trend is to remove all of that. And I think that's a lot of folks who would then, who saw the witch, who were my friends or people in the community going like, where's all the traditional elements of horror films? And I would say, uh, to me, it's like the true term of elevated genre. It's like watch Greenaway's The Cook, The Wife, The Thief, The Lover, all the French extremity stuff yes. like Raw, which is gorgeous. Yeah. But they keep the promise of what a genre means traditionally to the genre fan. And I think that is where the disconnect comes from. Also, I think in your soul that you feel it's like, well, this is a tasteful horror film, a film that I could bring home to my mother, I can bring someone on a date, you know, it's not like Cannibal Holocaust, where you're slumming in the street. But I take my dates to Cannibal Holocaust. I mean, I watched The Witch. I watched The Witch, and it's beautifully made, and I went, he can craft such gorgeous images, why isn't he showing us these images? That's why I'm sitting there and watching it. And you can still be high art and show those and show that stuff. It's like Haxon is, is, is a high art film, and it shows a lot of witchery. I know he has it in them. I think people should know. But I think it's just being afraid of being pigeonholed. Yeah. And also maybe the idea of trying to make it, like, quote-unquote, like, respectable. Do you know what I mean? Horror fans don't like yeah. that. Horror, yeah. horror f- fans are yeah, a lot that's of blue, that's or that's blue color. No, no, I was just going to say, I just felt like it was marketed wrong. Mm-hmm. Because it was marketed to be what you're explaining. But when I saw it, I was like, well, this is a drama. Mm-hmm. I saw and, and for, it for me, it was marketing. a drama. And, and I, I liked it as a drama. I didn't look at it as a horror film. I saw it before um, its marketing. I saw it at Fantastic Fest. And mm-hmm. then I saw it when it was marketed. So I watched it twice. And it's like, no, it's not enough in there for yeah. what I need when I watch a film. Nick. But it's gorgeous. I was just going to add to that. It comes at night, which to me was the mm-hmm. is my favorite horror movie of, of this year and obviously it's the same distributor as, as The Witch and, and certainly could be argued that if in fact you want to say it suffered, I mean it didn't dampen my enthusiasm for either of, either of those movies my joke about, about Witch and The Witch and It Comes at Night was that I grew up in Connecticut in the woods, spent a lot of time in the woods and you know have a predilection for devilry and whatever and, and the whole deal and you know at the end of The Witch there's a goat who's right. Satan incarnate or whatever and so it had all those things going that suited my particular interest and I still liked It Comes at Night better you know I, I, I really that movie really really affected me and, and it really rubbed people the wrong way I mean I literally remember walking out of that theater and people were being like what the fuck with you know and because you didn't see the you know uh, the spore or whatever that was causing this contagion and things like that I mean I think there's lots of there's lots of seats at the table certainly people's personal preferences will will come to bear on stuff but it doesn't mean that there isn't room for that kind of stuff and and, and, and to make a really good movie and, and something that, that still can be considered part of the part of the genre. I go to horror to see or to be devastated or to make it feel like it's Halloween again, like with fun rubber monster movies like Ghoulies 2. Hey. It's not that. It's like I can't. I can't watch people that look like... Because they're just... It's, I consider it like to be like a lot of the stuff to be like Whole Foods horror. It's that kind of person... Heather, it's a ghost. Yes. It's interesting you bring that up because, real quick, before we jump to the next next and probably the last one, because time's almost up already. Um, Under the Shadow, incredible film 
Thank you. I'm glad someone saw it. Uh, incredible film dealing with a lot of issues, both gender-wise, politics, history. I thought Outwitch the Witch because it has such an atmosphere to it. Um, and I'm not going to get too much into it because of time, but if you get a chance, check it out. The That's atmosphere good. it creates is incredible, and it had the greatest jump scare moment I've seen in a theater ever. It was incredible. Um, with that being said, one of the things that was brought up a lot by you, Heather, was the aspect of not only remaking a film over and over with different perspectives, but also the aspect of you know how the film looks and what, what our expectations are. Stephen King's It, the, I guess you could say the remake of it, the, you know, whatever, the adaptation of it, came out. It blew away the box office. It helps that Stranger Things is out there. It helps that a lot of the it's a cycle of this kind of horror that's going through. The clown is much scarier uh, to some people. Some people, Tim Curry is scarier because of the personality he brings. Everyone's different. That's awesome. But the success of it and that adaptation, does that open up the gates to films? Because for me, you know, there's a lot kept in the book that's not shown on the screen. Yeah. <coughs> Where did you see? Just throwing that out there for everyone out there, but it's very much, to some people, a whitewash. It's just a simple story with a very scary kind. i got to be honest, it didn't really connect with me at all. I thought Tim, Car Tim Curry's character was much scarier because he had personality. He wasn't trying to rip your face off. He was like someone that you would meet at a party and go, well, it had the unfortunate CGI over the actor's yeah. eyes, right. which, yeah. which I couldn't connect with because it's handsomely made film. It's beautiful. Right. It feels like a Stephen King film. But every single scare was flat because all those scares in the books, it's like this is a weird thing that the character is scared by. But I think every time it says, if I show you a disturbing image, you're not you're going to be disturbed. And I think because they didn't build the tension and context around what really scared them, why they didn't work. Because I kept seeing over and over and over again, it's like, it's not scary, it's not scary. But horror fans know better. They watch stuff that they're not scared of all the time. Right. But I think it's just that there's a cer certain emotional crescendo that you're going through when you're watching genre films. And like when you're just ready to feel it, and you get nothing, and that happens over and over again in the film. Yeah. And I think it's, it's his performance. It was a shame they did that to his eyes. I mean, I'm not afraid of any clowns. I've worked on a clown movie, but it's, they're not, they're not, um, they're not frightening. I think with Tim but Curry happy. being uh, scarier because it was more real. Mm -hmm. You know, like you knew this whole CGI world was on top of, of the most current it. Um, and it there was moments where it was kind of like disturbing, but uh, I feel like in the book it's more uh, the character of it is supposed to be kind of a manifestation of what kids are afraid of, right. and the current it wasn't so much that it was it was so um, it was that monster. It was just a monster, right? Exactly. And, and didn't it didn't really yeah. torment the kids. Like I was trying to get it's like what right. is his motivation? What he is he trying really to do? torment the kids? You're right, and I felt that with Tim Curry, he was. He was tormenting. I also know? understood it. And he was kind yeah. of a bully yeah. tormenting. It was something that the kids or the kids as grown-ups could relate to. Um, I did like the fact that it was uh, the kids' story. Yeah. I am a fan of Stranger Things I, or Goonies or any of those those films that have like kids running the show. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I I'm also a big fan of practical effects. And I miss that with the, like, I, I appreciate CGI, but when it's overly done, I felt like it was just too much of it. I would also add to that that I think I totally agree with both of you. I didn't feel like the film worked at all. And I think for me, one of the reasons that the film didn't work 
was in the book, one of the most frightening aspects of the book really isn't necessarily always the clown. It's the horrible, horrible, real things that happen. Yeah, right. It's real over and over again. Exactly. The yeah. bully and the, the parents and stuff right. like that. And they, I don't know, for me, maybe it was the fact that the director, uh, what's his name? Andy um, Buschetti. Uh, yeah, he, like, he's coming from like the big budget commercial sure. kind of like, bland world of horror. And I feel like his kind of instinct was, oh, people are scared of clowns. Let me jam pack in as many clown moments as I can. <laughs> to the sacrifice of the actual emotional development of the kids. So you see the kids, and it is a kid's story, but there's, they're, they're spending so much time putting in these trailer moments into the film that you really don't get a lot of time with the kids to, to care about them when yeah, things happen. Yeah, they're real yeah. situations. And some yeah. of it's ridiculous. It's like, oh my God, he's scared about the leper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like why? You don't, I don't know who this kid is really, because you haven't really gone in depth, so I don't know why like, this is happening. Is that happened. a leper or is that a zombie? Yeah, right. spend the whole time figuring out what the hell is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just like, clown, 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 over and over again. But if it makes I, a lot of money and yeah. people want to make more horror films, and I, I'll say that about elevated genre as yeah. well, it makes me very happy. Totally. Idea totally of your agree. personal but, taste, totally. but yes. Wait, hold on. I, I'm, I'm going to address that in just a second because that's for me. I completely disagree with that. But Nick, you want to say something? Uh, well, I think that uh, you, you can't you can't put it all on Andy Muschietti either. Uh, that that was a big big movie. Yeah, and true. Lots it's of people. Lots of expectations. Of they also inherited that script. It's just yeah. the reality of the way movies are made, and and, and you have level. producers, and yeah. you have studio people, and and as much as that's a Hollywood cliche, it really, it really does is. happen. Those <laughs> yeah. people, I mean, the you know, I always think of it couldn't have less to do with this conversation or whatever. But I always think about Moulin Rouge, where where they have the the Duke, who's going to be their financier, and at the end of the song, the impresario says. And on top of your fee, you'll be involved artistically. Like, that's why a lot of people are in those positions. It's right. not because they're good at finding the, the dough, right, or whatever. It's because they have an artistic bring to bear that they that they want heard, and they get put in those positions. I mean, I think it is fair. I, I looked it up for the purposes of this panel. Stephen King is the number one living author in terms of adaptations. Um, Shakespeare is all time, as you might expect. Um, I, I think it also is fair to say at this point that his novels and all of his work are incredibly difficult to adapt for a lot of these Look at what The Shining with Cooper. Well, too. And the story about that, too, is that Stephen King hated it because he didn't think it had anything to do with his <laughs> novel. Not. ABC did a... But then they made it in 97. Yeah, right. Yeah, ABC like a did TV a miniseries movie. version of it. God knows why. Like, you would do that on network TV that right. hewed way, way closer to the, you know, uh, whatever. I mean, I think in terms of it, you know, it's interesting you're talking about what makes that work scary and what perhaps didn't work and obviously you know you can't now I always thought it was so funny like growing up because I never had it was like only in the last year that I realized that other people knew that that book had a child orgy scene in it I thought that was my like dirty secret about that book that I remember that nobody else knew about which of course they did if you think about where that falls in the book it comes very, very late, and it comes very, very close. It's obviously a flashback. It happens very close to the ultimate climax right. of that, which one could posit is because, you know, maybe one of the scariest things about that book, it certainly was if you read it when you were 12, like I did, is not that, you know, the teeth or whatever, the spider or whatever right. it is, it's that they all have, like, extremely underage it's sex. It's loss of innocence. Right, you know. That, that pet cemetery sem yeah. is another one where there's, you know... There's an incredibly sexual 
uh, entendre that's made really, really late in that novel. I won't say what it is, but it was that to me was the most horrifying thing about that book. That line will never be in a in a in a movie version of yeah. that film. The only one little thing that I want to just just add to that, and I'll stop, is that. I, I do think what's interesting and what I would like to see happen with Stephen King is a lot of times the bigger books, right, that are in his lexicon are treated commensurately in terms of the size of the film that gets made. So it is a huge book. It begets a huge movie. There's novellas and there's short stories and so forth. 1922 is a good example. Right. I love 1922. Yeah. It's an awesome movie. Tons of yeah, characters out there. Really good. Oh, yeah. Awesome. What I would like to see happen, and again, who the hell knows how you even do this or if it's possible, but I'd like to see more of an indie sensibility, or indie films even, which is to say low budget, no real stars, perhaps like not as much wherewithal in terms of what you can do, because once you can do it in terms of CGI, you have to do it. How expensive for, is it to buy those rights, though? Right, right. for yeah, some yeah, of the bigger... But for some of the bigger works to see smaller movies get made out of the bigger books as opposed to, okay, well, we have this huge, you know, this is one of the best known properties that he's known for. It's got to be a $5 million movie. You can't make it for $500,000. I don't think that's necessarily true. I mean, Gerald's Game was a really good, yeah. in Netflix, I don't know their budget, but that's one of those ones where I felt like you you could have made it for five hundred thousand predominantly in one location. Sure, it almost made it like a stage you know? yeah. Yeah. yeah, very much. I mean, they did. I mean, they did yeah, a really good job yeah. with it. I was surprised actually. But here's if I may throw something in. Here's the question though. It's about money, right? Money, money tells all. Money controls all, right? Right. You have the Dark Tower. You have it. Two films that have been panned by a lot of people. Yet it makes a lot of money. Opens it up to a lot of people who aren't necessarily horror fans. Just money-making fans. And that's the question right there. It's great to cheer for money. It's great to say, oh, they're making all these millions of dollars. Problem is, are you gonna say that in five years when every Stephen King adaptation is out and it's whitewashed and every Stephen King adaptation is out and they cut the book to ribbons? Kubrick did an amazing job. I think everyone in this room would agree that The Shining is a great film and he's a great director and his vision is that, how many decades ago was that? It's not modern day, folks. It's not even close to modern day. Um, before, because we have like, I think we have like 10 minutes left in there, something like that. Real quick to the crowd. Any thoughts? Before we close it out, good. Uh, another thing, I mean, it goes back to that, that point of diversity coming out of movies. Uh, it kind of comes from, it seems from the outside, anyway, from producers misunderstanding what made something successful. Like the fear that we're going to get to get out uh, six years from now, and the lesson that's learned isn't that white audiences could empathize with the, the, the straight of a, of a black man in America and be frightened by it, they're going to real. They're going to say, what made it successful was a horror film released in an early spring slot. So we get with like... <laughs> I mean, just like the wrong lessons get learned. Although I think I think that happens a lot. I mean, that's we're talking about the cyclical nature of films. I mean, I, you, what you see is somebody makes an awesome film that pushes boundaries and it's really interesting, and then everybody apes that film. Like found footage, whether or not you liked uh, Blair Witch, it broke ground. It right. did something right. that nobody else had done, and then everybody did it, and now the market is saturated. Somebody else will come along and react to that and and do something else, hopefully. And I, I, I agree with that. I think that there are dangers with that, but I think that that's something that happens regardless. 
in, in and not just in the horror genre. I feel like that happens all over the place. Uh, that that mimicry and that dilution of whatever it was originally that made that thing powerful will happen, and it's something that you just have to fight against by being continuously creative. You know what, as we wrap it up here, and again, I want to thank everyone involved, the panelists, the crowd out there, thank you so much for coming out to Fear NYC. Here's a thought to ponder. Who is that next master of heart? I'll throw it out first because I've had a chance to meet him face to face. His work speaks for himself. I think Mike Flanagan is that next master of heart. He's not traditionally a horror filmmaker. He is a storyteller. And Gerald's Game is a great example of that kind of film. Uh, Gerald's Game really is kind of the stage play. The way it's it put is. in there. And, and the great thing about it is that the actors that are in there aren't shiny and new. And that's a theme in it, that they're not shiny and new. Mm -hmm. They're just very talented, and they understood and they embraced what the material was about. And everything that Mike Flanagan has done, from Absentia to Oculus to Ouija 1 or 2, I, I, I lose track of the Ouija movies, um, to Before I Wake, which probably will never see the light of day uh, because of what relatively went with bankruptcy, to Gerald's Game, to more stuff, to The House in Haunted Hill, which he's doing the TV show for. So it's, he is as diverse, a wonderful storyteller, and especially with Hush, He's able to tap into things that we all understand and really go outside the box, which is something that in the system that we've been talking about, Hollywood, is something that they don't do. So, And his producer loves him. His producer and his producer have been together a long time, and he backs everything he does, which is a very big rarity. So uh, we'll go down the line. How are you? Who is that next master? I was going to say Mike Flanagan. You can say Mike Flanagan. Why? By all means, why? I get second vote. Third vote. Fourth. Go. I mean, I recently watched Hush for the first time, and it blew me away. And it's just—I mean, I had never seen anything like that before. So, yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> all right. Oh, I totally see the argument for Mike Flanagan. I would say if I was going to be totally truthful. I'm not sure I have an answer to that yet. Fair um, enough. I tell people to hire Roxanne Benjamin. I'm a big fan of hers. I, I remember seeing I think Southbound came out last year, and it, to me it was like a return to like 1993 horror, like demon night kind of horror. <laughs> and I just I, I've always really lo loved her work, and I'd want to see her make more and more feature films because I think she has a lot of great. She'd be great to work with on sex. She's very organized, and I just think the type of genre that she's attracted to. So I, I always tell people, it's like, if you want to hire someone to make your horror film, you should hire Roxanne Benjamin. I really like Roxanne. We tried to get her. Um, <laughs> I was like, damn it. Um, but um, I would say, because of the, qu the quantity, the amount that he's done, James Wan. Okay. Um, purely because of that. I mean, I like his films, but um, he's if you're looking at how many, you know, how many films someone has made in the genre, I would say he would be one of my top choices. He's like a five-tool player in the thing. Everything, you've got everything connected with him. Success, he's a minority. Right, he's exactly. He's able to work with different people. He's able to pull in multiple franchises. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, I guess I would say, you know, Robert Eggers and Trey Edward Schultz are the two guys that I, I you know, I love, I know Roxanne, I love Roxanne, can't wait to see what she does next. Also, um, I, the, the most recent movie that really blew me away in the horror genre was The Void. Um, there's two directors behind that. The Astron uh, Six guys, right? Yeah, Jeremy Gillespie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
but uh, but yeah, I, I certainly would be you know excited to to see what what all of those people come up with. Any final comments? Good, I'm fine. Um, this is not a question, but this is also I'd like to throw in a few people who I who have consistently impressed me. Um, this one may be a little obvious, or oh, Guillermo del Toro is, and, but also two people who I just who I think are more recent than him. Um, Nacho Vigayando. Ah, Colossus. Yes. Yes. And also um, Ben Wheatley. Yes. Yeah. Also, oh, and just speaking of Ben Wheatley, the actress in Sightseers, whose name escapes me. Alice in Love. Yes. She just came out with Prevenge, and Prevenge was, she was amazing. And given the fact that as an actress and a a first-time director, she's been working in horror, I would really hoping that she continues with that sort of material because it was brilliant. It was breathtaking. Anyone else? Go ahead. Julia Docker now. I think I uh, was raw. I was not as blown away with raw as other people were. I think in, in a post Cronenberg world, with Cronenberg being the top of the body horror sort of sub subgenre, I thought that was a good entry into it. Her movie Raw is a really good looking movie. And I think for starting out, starting with something that you're more comfortable with, and, and obviously she's a fan of that subgenre, I think that she has places that she can go from there. If she keeps building, I think she's definitely somebody that, that can become a, a big player if she keeps progressing on the path that she's on. I will also throw Ed Sanchez into the mix because Ed Sanchez is so diverse, and instead of sitting there on the success of Blair Witch, he went out and he's done it. And my personal favorite of his is Lovely Molly. Lovely Molly is so haunting, so terrifying, and Gretchen Mull is so amazing in that film. Anyone else? Osgood Perkins. Yes. Yeah. It's a good one. I have a pretty thing. That lives in the house, house. Oh, and Black so Coat's daughter yeah. is phenomenal. Yeah, He's so good. And folks, filmmakers, story, story, story. I can't say enough because all these filmmakers craft incredible story, incredible atmosphere. Yes, we'll close it out. Last one. Um, does anyone remember the name of the guy behind Stakeland, Mulberry Street? Uh, Jim Nichol. That's Jim yes. Nichol. Yes. Yes. Although he's kind of moved out of the horror genre. At yeah. This point. yeah, but I'm sure he will be back. I mean, yeah, it doesn't you know, mean he's not going to come he's back at some point. But talk about yeah. rats. Mulberry Street, how many blocks down? Rats, man, rats. <laughs> anyone else? I want to thank everyone out there. Everyone here for the panel.